That was a beautiful song. So you don't even have to know the song to be able to agree with the words and to sing along. Before we get started, I'd definitely, after the church service, I'd like to see the parents of the little boy who threw his shirt down on the ground. That is unacceptable. Pastor's kids are the worst. (laughs) Maybe he'll be a preacher. (laughs) Whose idea was it? Did I sign off on letting Kellen Drew come into this church and sing? Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Stephanie was sitting here crying from laughter. And enjoyment. The wonderful thing about having children is you can't take yourself seriously anymore. That's really what God is trying to get you to do. You know, the problem with, the the reason why the church is dying is because we're not preaching that you don't need to take yourself so seriously anymore. That's why the church is dying. We tell you that you're fine. Oh God, don't let this be a church that tells you you're fine. You're not fine. Jesus didn't die for you. If you were fine, he came to heal the sick. Oh, I can't wait to preach this sermon. We're going to have fun this morning. So get ready. If you have your Bibles, turn in them to Luke chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11. I'm going to go ahead and open this because I don't want to forget to read it. I don't have it noted in my sermon where I want to read it, but... I do want to paint a picture for you this morning, but I want to begin by asking you a very simple question, and that is this, why have you come to worship? Why have you come to worship? Now, I'm not asking you the question, why should you come to worship? I'm asking you to think a little bit deeper and to go into introspection and really ask yourself, why are you here this morning? And I'll tell you, the first answer probably won't be the right answer. Look past your sinful excuses and ask the question, really? And then be, don't be afraid to answer it, because you might find that the answer is not a good answer. You might find that the answer is a sinful answer, or not the right reasons why God wants us here. Why are you here to worship this morning? One of my favorite movies of all time, if not my favorite movie of all time, is the movie Moneyball. I love that movie. Ironically, I had no desire to ever see that movie because the only thing that's more boring than watching baseball is watching a movie about baseball. Sorry, Yankee fans. The good news is you don't have to watch baseball anymore. I see the Martinez family just all frowning right now. I wouldn't be surprised if Paco got up and ran out. I I envision that as I, I wrote that joke in here. Make sure Paco doesn't run out when you say it. But my wife and I try and usually watch movies that, you know, were best picture and were in the running for best picture. And we we watched that movie and I did not want to watch it. And it's one of my favorite movies of all time. And I was prepared to watch a film about the immoral greed of professional sports. That's what I thought it was about. I didn't know what it was about. 
But what I got was something entirely different, and I was pleasantly surprised. In other words, I was prepared for one thing, and I was surprised when I didn't get it, when I didn't get what I came for. That's not only the case that you are always pleasantly surprised that it always works in that direction. Most of the time when we're prepared for one thing and our expectations are not met, we end up furious and demand our money back. That's what we do, right? That's why all of these companies that are pitching you an item have a 30-day or 90-day or one-year money-back guarantee because if it does not meet what you what, what the seller has said it should do, if it doesn't meet your expectations, you are mad, you want your money back because you've been lied to. And, and let, me, let me just grant it to you, if that happens, you're well within your right to do so, right? We want to hold shysters accountable when they're selling us snake oil, right? When they're selling us something that doesn't work. And that's what we should do. But this is a real problem when we take that consumer mindset into the church. A real problem. Most Christians today come to church for themselves. Coming to see how God can meet their needs. In this, church, in this case, if church meets our needs, then it's good. If it doesn't meet our needs, then church was bad. We even grade churches on the way people dress, the venue, the coffee, the freebies, the music, and the sermon. Stephanie watches this show called Four Weddings, where four women go to weddings and they grade the wedding. They, they grade it on its venue, they grade it on the dress, they grade it on the overall experience, and one other stupid thing. And we sit in suspense, and, and they're just sitting there grading because it didn't meet their expectations. And we do that with church. We do. The, the church has grown 2.4% in converts from non-believers to believers. And yet, that's, that's nothing. That means 97.6% of the people that are going from one church, that of, of all church growth, 97.6% of all church growth, it's just one Christian getting fed up with this church and going to another When they didn't like the music or they didn't like the pastor, by the way, I didn't pull that static, that stat out, of, out from underneath my shoe. That's a real stat, 2.4%. The church is growing by new converts. That's the result of seeker-sensitive Christianity. It doesn't work. Are we ready to scrap it and say it doesn't work? Because it doesn't work. You need to be told how bad sin really is in order for you to sing songs about his mercy is more and really enjoy it. But you don't think you're that bad. You think you're just fine. And as long as you do that, you don't need God. In other words, we shop for churches looking for the best bang for our buck. And I literally mean buck because some Christians have even been known to withhold their tithe when the sermon or the music didn't go their way. 
I hear this frequently. When we ask, when we talk about time, people say, well, yeah, but what are we giving to? You're giving to God. That's what you're giving to. And this church presents a yearly budget, and we get 40 of you on a Sunday night. 40. Say, you're a jerk this morning, Andrew. Good. 40 of the 260 people in this building show up to hear how that money is spent. We testify to what we do with that money. Now, if you want to know where that money goes, come. Challenge. Ask. But don't ever let me hear you say, what are we giving to? When you're not giving. Yeah, and the church didn't say anything. But silence fell over the crowd. That's fine. Because we don't want to amen when we hear the truth. We amen when we want to talk about other people's truths. When we talk about what other people are struggling with, that's when we want to amen. But we don't want to amen when that pistol's pointed at us. We expect the music to meet our preference and the sermon to be relevant to our personal needs at the exact moment in our lives. If the sermon on a particular morning when we fought with the kids is about worship instead of how to get your child to go to sleep at night, then we leave feeling like the sermon wasn't relevant to our lives and we complain that we just aren't being fed. If the sermon made us uncomfortable, then we complain that it's too legalistic. If the music director didn't sing our favorite songs, then we didn't feel the Holy Spirit this morning. We want our churches to cater to our own ever-changing personal needs. And they just don't do that. A.W. Tozer said or noted this trend decades ago. He said... It is now common practice in most evangelical churches to offer the people, especially the young people, a maximum of entertainment and a minimum of serious instruction. It is scarcely possible in most places to get anyone to attend church where the only attraction is God. We've got to do everything to get people out today. God's not enough. One can only conclude that God's professed children are bored with him for they must be wooed to meeting with a stick of striped candy in the form of religious movies, games, and refreshments. Tozer goes on to argue that the contemporary church reflects the glory of a golden calf rather than the glory of the living God. According to Tozer, the modern church has made much ado about nothing. When he says that the glory of the golden calf is made, his point is this. Every person who erects an idol does so, so that the idol will meet their needs. The real motivation behind idolatry is forging gods that will meet our needs and whether we're actually out in our workshop with a welding machine smelting down uh, metals or whether we just say i believe god is like x y or z we have made a god that will suit our needs and that is not the god of scripture the God of Scripture makes us uncomfortable. 
He makes you sleep. He makes you restless until you reconcile with him. He is not a God who, if you just do a couple little things, is going to make sure your grain will grow. He's the God who will take the very breath out of your pipes. The God of Scripture will not be molded to your likes. You will mold to his likes or you will be under his wrath. That is the God of Scripture. Testify. That is the God of Scripture. According to Tozer, the modern church has made much ado about nothing, neglecting to disciple men and women in the essential qualities of the Christian life. He says, any objection to the carrying ons of our present golden calf Christianity is met with the triumphant reply, but we are winning them. And he asks the question of all questions. Winning them to what? To true discipleship? To cross-carrying? To self-denial? To separation from the world? To crucifixion of the flesh? To holy living? To nobility of character? To a despising of the world's treasures? To hard discipline? To love for God? To total committal to Christ? Of course, the answer to all these questions is no. But the church is dying because it is no longer relevant, says the contemporary Christian. We must change. We must give in to the whims of society and embrace the new social ethic if we are to outlast the onslaught. But Christ says, I will Build my church, and the gates of hell itself will not prevail against my church. But what the critic perceives as death, God knows is really pruning. Our pews have been filled with dead branches for far too long that are as much a fire hazard as they are hard to look at. What legitimizes a revival is not how high the people are jumping at the moment, but how straight they walk when they finally hit the ground, to quote Jim Summers on his birthday. Many churches have learned the key to drawing crowds, but like bugs to a bug zapper, they are attracted to a false and deadly light. In true revivals, and this has always been the case, People don't feel better about themselves, but so terrible that they repent of their wickedness before a holy God. That's what happens. People feel terrible about themselves because they have seen the glory of God. Look at what happened when Ezra read the law. The people wept. And when Peter preached at Pentecost, the people were stricken to their heart. Or the effects of the first and the second great awakenings, all true revivals are the result of the preached word and a call to repentance. 
This past week, I brought Johan into my office. I put on a, a famous pastor of our day, in fact, a pastor of the largest church in America, and I, I read to him before we did this, I read to him the mission call, the gospel call of John the Baptist, which is, who warned you, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Repent! And I let him listen to the pastor of the largest church in America, and I said, do these two sound the same? And I had to get him up off the floor and he said, I cannot believe how far removed they are. The three consequences of any revival are therefore an acute awareness of sin, a deep felt contrition of the heart. That means there is really, really a heart that says, I have sinned against God. And finally, there is a call to repentance. This is all brought about by the reality of God's wrath resting upon an unrepentant sinner. God's wrath is terrifying. And if you feel okay this morning, being out from under the gospel of Jesus Christ, you do not understand the wrath of God. Today's churches preach sermonettes that produce Christianettes. The church has tried to remove every offense from the Bible so that non-believers will find Christianity palatable to their religious taste buds. People come for the flashy lights and the inspirational messages, and our churches are unfortunately delighted to give it to them. The problem is that the feeling good and having fun are not the point of the worship service. When we prepare ourselves to worship God in this way, we are disappointed when it doesn't happen and we condemn the church for being irrelevant. We want our money back because it doesn't meet our expectations. But worship is not about you. It's about God. Worship is not about feeling good about ourselves. It's about recognizing the true horror of our sins and the consequences that they bring. Worship is not about having fun. It's about receiving grace for our sins. And worship isn't about coming as you are and leaving the same. It's about being challenged to deny yourself and take up your cross. That is what worship is about. This morning, I want to talk about how you must prepare for worship. Let's pray. Father, you, no one, no one can receive your gospel unless you give them ears to hear and eyes to see. God, you have to do this. Jesus, you didn't hold the punches when you preached the gospel. And your men that followed you did not pull back the punches. They preached the truth. And the world was changed. I'm going to do that this morning, Lord, and I pray that you open up eyes and open up ears and open up hearts. Amen. Look at our passage this morning. Luke chapter 5, verses 1. I want to read the passage and then I want to grab, I want to take some points from it. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little 
from the land. Imagine the scene for just a second. Jesus would be pressed upon so heavily by the crowds because the crowds knew that he had something they wanted. He could heal them. And who would not run out to be healed? If you had a sick child, if you were sick, you would, you would cross heaven, you would cross every sea, you would cross every mountain you could to get to Jesus. And the crowds were pressing in on him. And Jesus runs up and gets in. Simon's not in the boat. He just jumps in his boat and says, hey, push, push me out from here. And Simon knows that Jesus is important. And he agrees. And he pushes him out to get away from the crowd. And he sat down and he taught the people from the boat. He needed a place to talk to them without them touching him. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. The preaching is over. Let's do some fishing. But Jesus is doing more than fishing. Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your order or at your word, I will let down the nets. Simon is going to obey. A rabbi is a man of great authority. He had something that today we're losing, and that is a respect for clergy. He still respected clergy. He doesn't know that Jesus is Lord yet. And even when he begins to follow him as his, as his disciple, he won't get it until after the resurrection. He's just being respectful to the rabbi. Master, we know, we, we didn't catch anything, but you know what you said us to do it? I'll let down my nets. And you know what Peter is thinking? God is so crazy. Or this guy is so crazy. Every time we're talking to clergy, they're always asking us to do crazy, crazy things. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. Jesus has proved his point. What's the point, by the way? I control the fish that get in your nets. That's the point. If you know anything about fishing, anybody who's a fisherman knows when the fish are not biting, they are not biting. I don't care what jig you put on the end of your line, you're not catching a fish. They get moody. They're like cats. I don't want that. And they just go over into their little, their little cove. I know I'm going to hear about cats. I didn't know we had so many cat lovers the last time I said something. They, they, they get moody and they don't want to, they're not going to bite. It doesn't matter what you put out. They, they have different seasons of aggression. During, during mating season, bass are a lot more aggressive. And you can catch, I mean, you can throw out a piece of bread and a bass will bite it. You could throw out an empty hook and a bass will bite it. But when they're not biting, when it's hot, they're just not getting in the, in the net. And every man, a fisherman, who this is his living, knows the fish are not going to bite. And all of a sudden, he sees that the fish nets are completely about to break. What does this rabbi know about catching fish? But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. 
getting that much fish would have been equivalent to winning something like the lottery. That was how they made their money. He knew there was something more important at that moment than the fish. And when we sell God as some kind of bank accountant that just gives us more and more fish, more and more money, we are missing the forest for the tree. We miss the point. God's not there to put fish in our nets. He is there to be acknowledged and worshipped. And Peter sees the fish and forgets about the fish. So much fish, they're not going to have to work for a very long time. And he turns to him and he says, get away from me, I am unclean. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. On that day, something was more important than what they could get out of God. God himself was the object of their worship. I want to tell you four ways you need to prepare for worship. When you come into the house of God, number one, prepare to see God's glory. Prepare to see it. The glory of God is terrifyingly beautiful. To truly be in the midst of God is a terrifying thing. Someone once said to MacArthur, you've heard the joke before, but many haven't. God spoke to me this morning while I was shaving. And MacArthur said, did you quit shaving? He said, no. He said, then it wasn't God. We are not cavalier when we see the glory of God, people. When God manifests himself, really, we are brought to our knees. And it is all we can do but declare, be merciful upon me, a sinner. Because it's glory, the darkness, it says, darkness flees from light. And we are darkness. And to see the glory of God truly is to flee. John Calvin said, when we see those who previously stood firm and secure, so quaking with terror that the fear of death takes hold of them. Nay, they are in a manner swallowed up and annihilated. The inference to be drawn is that men are never duly touched and impressed with a conviction of their insignificance until they have contrasted themselves with the majesty of God. Why is our mission to preach and have a ministry that is God-glorifying and not man-centered, it is so you might fall to your knees in the knowledge of your sin. If we only preach about how good you are, it never brings you to your knees. You have to see the glory of God. If you're going to ever take account of how bad your sin is. 
If you want to prepare for worship, prepare to see the glory of God. When Isaiah saw the glory of the Lord, he declared, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He was thankful when a coal was taken from the altar and his lips burnt that they might be, his sins might be atoned for. I submit to you, if I pulled a coal out of the fire and said, let me burn your lips, you would not be excited about it. But when you stand in the glory of a holy God, nothing is better than that your sins be taken away. When Samson's father, Manoah, knew that he had been in the presence of the Lord, he declared to his wife, we shall surely die, for we have seen God. What a holy estimate of who God is. When Paul encountered the Lord on the road to Damascus, he fell to his face, lost his sight, and cried out for mercy to the Lord. And Peter's experience was the same. When he knew that he was in the presence of the glory of God, the only thing he could say was, get away from me. I am unclean. You say, that's a feeling that I don't want to have when I come to church. And I tell you, listen to me, unless you have that feeling, you cannot see the kingdom of God. You must know that you stand in the presence of a holy God. Believer, you must know. American, you must know that you stand in the presence of a holy God. The reason why you can say something so, so foolish as I am a good person is because you have not contemplated the holiness of God and seen his glory. And our churches must preach the glory of God. Maybe you're looking for another church. If you are, let me give you one piece of advice. Look for the church that preaches hard truths where you see God's glory every Sunday and you are convicted of your sin. Stop. It would be one thing. It's like the man, it's like the man who commits adultery on his wife and he always does so for an uglier woman than the woman he was with. You, you look at his wife, you go, Wait, he left her for this? And you know what I'm talking about? And you're always like, what in the world? How did he leave that beautiful woman for this, you know, ugly woman? People, by the way, there, are, there is a such thing as beautiful women and ugly women. I don't know if people still believe that or debate that. They're real. Trust me. You think I ended up with Stephanie because of how good a personality is? I looked at her and I said, I bet she is a nice girl who has a good personality. No! I said, that girl, fine. And I went up and I threw game on her. I said, hey, girl. You can have this for life. Actually, she came up to me and said, are you going to ever ask me out and put her number into my phone? Claire, don't follow your mother's example. We have to see the glory of God if we're going, 
if we're going to go anywhere in this life, if we're ever going to be saved. And so what I end up happening is that so many people leave this church and go to churches that are not really churches. It'd be one thing if you were going to a church that preached harder, but you're not. You run to churches that tell you how to get thinner and how to make more money. And I'm left there standing, what are you doing? Why'd you go to that ugly woman? You should have stayed with here. We're at least pretty attractive. We've got a really great personality. I mean, I don't get it. But really, I do get it. Because they're not rejecting the church. They're rejecting the glory of God. The point is that when sinful man encounters a holy God, it is deathly terrifying. Today, we are unprepared to see God's glory. We expect to hear about us, specifically how, can, how God can improve our lives. We expect to be uplifted, but the glory of God tears us down. We expect to hear good news without first hearing the bad news. Worship is the moment where we come into the presence of God through the sacrifice of His Son, praising and thanking Him for His, his undue mercy and His grace given to demerited sinners. You understand that grace is not, God's grace is not unmerited, it's demerited. In other words, you did everything that God would have to hold you accountable for your sins. And yet He gave you grace. Listen to what Scripture says. While you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. And we can't sing and worship God. Prepare to see the glory of God when you come to worship. Number two, prepare to see the horror of your sin. True worship cannot exist without the knowledge of the horror of our sin and the appropriate response in repentance. Peter's response to Christ, when he acknowledged the glory of God, there was a response. He didn't just stand there, there was a response. He heard, he saw, he witnessed the glory of God, and his response was that he fell down at Jesus' feet. My goal in every sermon is to get you off your feet and on your face, pleading for the mercy of God. He pleaded for God to take away his wrath from his wickedness. He said, flee from me. He's asking him, go away, get away from me. I, I know that me as a sinful person can't stand here with you as a holy God. Get away from me. There is a pleading to God. And I have to preach this step. I have to preach step one and I have to preach step two because too many of our churches are preaching step three, the goodness of God, without teaching his holiness and the horror of your sin. Someone said in a study, I had a, someone came and asked me the other day. He said, um, man, I was reading this study and this pastor says in this study, homosexuality is not God's best for you. I said, you ought to throw the study out. Not his best for you. It denies the very purpose for why you were made in his image, male and female, that the two would become one flesh. Pastors, stop trying to make people happy so that they give you more money. You are buying lies. 
have to see his glory. You have to see your sin. 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 4. Paul knew this, and so he told the young pastor, Timothy, he said to him, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in the kingdom. Think about that for one moment. There's going to be one judge, and the judge is not going to be the police. It's not going to be public opinion. It's not going to be your Facebook friends. It's going to be the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who is all-knowing, who is all-powerful, and who is completely holy, who will judge you for your sins. You will stand before him. You cannot say, I am good, when you stand before him. Paul says, brother, I charge you, warn the people. They're going to stand before the judgment seat of God. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove. That means tell them what they're doing is wrong. Don't say it's not God's best. Tell them it's sin. You have offended God. He will judge you for it. Rebuke. That means not only say it's wrong, tell them stop doing it. Leave this life now. I am warning you. He says exhort. That means urge them to do God's goodness. Not only turn from your sin, turn to God with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound. That means true teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate. That means they were going to go and they're going to find every church and every blog and read every book about how God is on my side and how I can get more out of him. They're going to accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And the word is unfortunate, their passions, because it means sinful desires. They're looking for people to say, hey, it's okay. God accepts that lifestyle. It's okay. God's on your side. God supports your sinful sex life and your greed and your idolatry. Just come and be here. God says, my people will actually go and look for that. They want to be lied to. They're going to find teachers, and there's always teachers. They're always out there to scratch these itching ears. And he says, they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. But as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. In other words... Speak God's truth, no matter what happens. Christian, I know you feel the pressure on you in this society. I know, I know you feel the pressure. I know because I feel it myself. I know you're spiritually depressed. How could your country embrace something that God's word has called sin, but it has? Who are you going to side with? Yes, it is easier to say Yay and amen to sin and get along to get along with the people of America. 
But Paul told Timothy, the people of America aren't the judge you need to fear. Fear the judge who has the ability to not only take away this life, but your eternal life as well. I don't know who the woman is here who keeps saying glory, but you are welcome here every Sunday. Get these people listening. Amen. Whatever happened to It's in the Book? We need to call him up. If there's any guy who needs to be in our church, get Isaac back here. Put, put, get, 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 you guys probably talk to him on Facebook. Say, Isaac, we need you back here. Every one of us ought to be prepared to see the horror of our sin and respond in true repentance and a changed life. One seeker-sensitive pastor has said, people already feel guilty enough. They're not doing what they should, raising their kids. We, we can all find reasons. So I want them to come to my church and our church meetings and be lifted up and say, you know what? I may not be perfect, but I'm moving forward. I'm doing better. And I think that motivates you to do better. That's the pastor of the law. Listen to me. Listen to me. That's the pastor of the largest the largest church in America. He is also the most well-known pastor in America. Do you hear me? And he's preaching lies. People don't feel guilty enough. He says they feel too guilty. They don't feel guilty enough. LifeWay research recently found that a large portions of Americans avoid at every chance shame and guilt wherever possible. That's why they don't want to go to church, at least the good ones. Don't you want to know the truth? If you had a disease, don't you want to know that you have that disease? You know what happens when they find the disease too late? You're dead. But isn't it worse when that disease is curable? The third thing you have to do, be ready for is prepared to receive the grace of God. In light of all I've said, if that's all I said, God is terrifying and we are above all people to be pitied. That's why euangelion means blessed or good news because things are really that bad. Here's the good news. True worship is the human expression of relief to God's gift of grace and giving of His Son. It is a relief True worship is the relief where you can say there, yes, as I've been sitting there singing the song this morning, never heard the song before. Yes, my sins are so many. Oh my gosh, God, you know my sins. But your mercy is so much more. How can you sing with the other Christians and the, and the multitudes down through the nations Holy, 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 and praise God with such joy and let you understand how glorious He is, how sinful you are, and how good His mercy is. You can't even do church if you're not prepared for those things. Jesus told Peter, 
Peter, do not be afraid. Is there any more beautiful thing to hear a holy God say to a sinful human being, do not be afraid? You know it when you get pulled over by a police officer. He tells you, don't be afraid. Oh, thank God. And then he hands you a ticket. But no, you, but you know what I mean. When, when the authority tells you, don't be afraid. Imagine that that person has in your hands your physical life and your eternal life. He is the one who you have offended. It is not simply that you are immoral. It is that you have hated this holy God. And the one who you've hated, the one who you owe everything to, says to you in the sweetest words, do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. John, the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 24 through 48, there's a story of a guy named Thomas. We should all be familiar with the story. I want to just really briefly read that to you. This is after the resurrection. It says, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand in his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Thomas is one of the most maligned, ill-maligned characters in all of Christendom. What do we call him? Doubting Thomas. He's the doubter. The audacity of Thomas to doubt God and to be so bold and to say to God, unless I see it, I'm not believing. And we miss the point. The point of the story is not Thomas's doubt, but the Lord's compassion when he says, Thomas, believe. And the only thing Thomas could do is say, my Lord, and my God. Up until that point, all Thomas thought he had lost was a, a friend, a moral teacher. Thought he lost a truly wise man, a guru of sorts, a great rabbi. He didn't realize that he had lost in the death his Lord and his God. And now he saw the resurrection. The resurrection brought him the peace with God 
and life everlasting brought him to his knees, declaring, my Lord and my God. The reason why we preach God's glory is to shed light on the horror of our sin so that we might put our trust in the compassionate Lord Jesus. Finally, prepare to be challenged. Prepare to see God's glory. Prepare to see the horror of your sin. Prepare to receive grace and prepare to be challenged. You should leave challenged every time you're here to worship. Church should challenge us. True worship challenges us to come as we are. As one of the songs we sang this morning, if you tarry till you are better, you will never come. Yes, yes, come as you are. I don't care what you look like when you get here. Just make sure everything's covered. Despite what my son showed you this morning, I do want you covered. But come. Be here. Yes, there's sin in your life. Come here. Be challenged to leave your sin at the cross and to take up your own cross and follow Christ. The Lord commissioned Peter. Not only did he say to Peter, Peter, do not be afraid. He said what? From now on, you will be catching men. God removed Peter's sins as far as as the east is from the west. From now on. From now on. You say, but I did some really bad things, Pastor. Yeah, but from now on. Oh, they're really bad. Yeah, but from now on. From now on. What do you mean by now? I mean 1203 now. On until the day you die. Now on. From now on, follow Jesus. You say, but what if I mess up? Then from now on, follow Jesus. From that point on, follow Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Today is the day of salvation. Peter still went fishing and Paul still made tents, but everything they did from now on was in obedience to the Lord's mission. Think of yourself from now on as a beggar who has found the bread of life and who now lives to tell other beggars where they can find that life. Be prepared for worship. Church, it is a bad thing that Americans expect their churches to do something di different than declare the glory of God, the horrors of sin, the grace in Jesus Christ, and the conviction of the cross. We must not be that statistic. Be prepared to worship God in spirit and in truth. Let's pray. God, we pray that you were glorified this morning. Lord, if for anything this week, make us ponder your glory. Shine so bright on our way to work, 
in our thoughts as we sleep, when we're talking. Let us ponder your glory. Let your glory shine on us so bright that we may see every sin in our life so that we might confess it and receive your grace. Lord, we stand here in your presence right now. The terror of God is before our eyes. You have each and every one of us in our hands, in your hands. The heart that beats in our chest, you can stop at any moment. And yet, you're calling us today to repent. For today is the day of salvation. Lord, I know I have seen their face, and you know I've seen their face. I know the men in this church by their name who need to repent of their sins, fall on their face, and follow you. You and I know their names. I know the men by their name who are rejecting you this morning. I pray that you, God, send your Holy Spirit into that man and that woman's life right now that they might repent of their sins. We have wasted our time here, God, if those sinful men and women leave this church this morning on a dead man's path. They came unprepared to worship today. But Holy Spirit, interrupt their life right now. I know who they are. You know who they are, God. And I pray that you would bring the sweet, sweet grace of your gospel into their hearts. Lord, we love you, and we pray that you be sovereign over our salvation because you are good. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.